and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today, we're absolutely thrilled to be talking to Roberto Stefan Foa. Roberto is the university lecturer in politics and public policy at Cambridge, and also co-director of the Cambridge Centre for the Future of Democracy and director of the YouGov Cambridge Centre for Public Opinion Research. He very recently, um, over the course of 2020, published two reports that we're going to be looking at today. The first is called Global Satisfaction with Democracy, published in January 2020. And the second, Youth and Satisfaction with Democracy, which was just published in October 2020, both with the Bennett Institute. Roberto, it's a huge pleasure to have you on the Palia podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tori. It's a pleasure to be here. Can I ask you to help frame this conversation by giving me uh, an overview of both reports? What were you looking at in each? So what we were able to do in this project is that we've now gathered data from almost 5 million survey respondents across 177 countries of the world, going back a quarter of a century in most of the world and in Western Europe all the way back to 1973, so almost half a century of data. And with this data set, what we're able to do is not only have that uh, expansive scope in time and in space, uh, but we also have a much higher resolution. What I mean by that is that instead of having you know, one survey observation per year, uh, or even every few years, uh, we can get through this data set three, four, five, even 10 polling observations a year for some countries. Uh, so that enables a really, a really rich depth of analysis. We found in our first report that uh, satisfaction with the performance of democracy across the world has fallen by about 10 percentage points since the mid-1990s. And actually, since 2005, it's a much larger inc- uh, decrease in satisfaction, so about 19 percentage point uh, decrease, uh, to a situation where today, for the first time, we can say that a majority of democratic citizens across the world are dissatisfied with how their democracies are performing. Um, now, obviously, there's big differences between countries and between regions, and uh, it's not necessarily the case that in every country or every region uh, that things have been getting worse. Uh, and of course, that also implies that there are some regions where things have been getting uh, significantly worse, even than the global picture would imply. So we'll get into some of the regional differences and some of the demographic differences um, in, in a little bit. But yes, the, the key piece is that we now have a majority of, of citizens in democratic countries who are dissatisfied with the way their democracies are running. Talk to us a little bit about what you found on the youth side. Sure. I mean, there is this theory, right? I mean, essentially, it's not a new observation to say that you know, young people are more dissatisfied or more critical with prevailing institutions than older age groups. Uh, this is something that's been observed uh, all the way back to comments by Greek philosophers. I think it's not necessarily surprising for many people to observe that younger age groups are more dissatisfied with democracy than older age groups. And I think that most people's interpretation of that 
would be to say that, well, this is probably just a life cycle effect, that maybe people start out life critical and dissatisfied, but eventually as people grow up, uh, get an education and get a job and settle down, have a family, that eventually uh, individuals mellow out uh, to some degree and become more satisfied with the institutions of the society in which they live. So I think one of the real key findings from our recent report is that that, that doesn't, actually, doesn't seem to be the case, that what we see is that millennials are not only much more dissatisfied with democracy than uh, baby boomers are today, but they're also much more dissatisfied than Generation X or baby boomers had been at the same stage in life. Right. So what that suggests to us is that this is really a generational effect. This is actually a, a profound shift that is likely to persist over the course of the life cycle, over the course of the lifespan, and reflects uh, objective circumstances in millennial lives compared to how uh, baby boomers had in the past. That's exactly what I wanted to dig into. Um, but one thing to be absolutely clear and to clarify is that dissatisfaction with democracy is absolutely not the same thing as anti-democratic sentiment, is it? You can be dissatisfied with democracy because you hope that democracy could deliver more for you. But there is a link, isn't there, between those, that anti-democratic sentiment and that dissatisfaction. That's absolutely right. And it's one thing that is incredibly important. We always highlight it up front in the report, and I always mention it in contexts such as this, that uh, we're not measuring people's satisfaction with democracy in the abstract as an idea. What these survey questions measure is people's satisfaction or dissatisfaction with how democracy is performing. But I think that the best way of thinking about this is in terms of a process of disillusionment that in the first step, people become dissatisfied with how democratic institutions are performing. They don't like the look of existing political parties or candidates. People become more apathetic, uh, more withdrawn from politics, more cynical. Um, but it's only really in a kind of second stage of disillusionment that uh, individuals become prepared to endorse anti-system candidates who say they're going to overthrow uh, the existing system of representative government. Uh, where individuals become more tempted there by, by a more populist, anti-establishment platform, and, and perhaps even actively hostile to certain liberal democratic norms. That's fascinating. It feels as if certain uh, Eastern European countries have gone down that road. There's that interesting move whereby you can be profoundly dissatisfied with the democratic processes in your country, wish for something else, and then be satisfied with the institutions of a non-democratic or less democratic state. Are there equivalent uh, research papers that have looked at what people are satisfied with in non-democratic countries? Yes, such research does exist. And there are a lot of questions about satisfaction with government that can be applied in non-democratic non countries uh, as well as in democracies to try and have some basis for comparison, comparative analysis there. Um, I think in general, the way to think about this is in terms of how do you define quality of government? And one aspect of quality of government is the degree of democratic uh, representation and features that are associated with democracies that people value, citizens value, such as um, having freedom of speech, um, having human rights and not being uh, afraid that there'll be a knock on the door in the middle of the night and you'll be carried away. But there are other aspects of quality of government that perhaps non-democratic regimes can still perform quite well on, 
uh, including rule of law, uh, potentially control of corruption, uh, perhaps delivery of public services, and of course, uh, delivery of economic growth, which is something of fundamental importance to citizens in many developing democracies. That's extremely helpful. I wonder whether you might give us a whistle-stop tour around the world of the key findings that you've discovered. So in no particular order, can we start with, um, could we start with Africa? There is a, there, there's particular trends there, which I think are really interesting. Sure, and I like this approach, I have to say. Um, I really don't like uh, generalized theories to explain complex phenomena. I think that's very much a, a mistake of intellectuals to fixate on a master theory uh, when really uh, there are only kind of temporary sub-theories. So anyway, to start with Africa then. Um, well, I think that the case of Sub-Saharan Africa, when we look at the trends of the last couple of decades, where Sub-Saharan Africa's satisfaction with democracy was very, very high in the 1990s, you had a real wave of euphoria following democratic transitions during that era. And what has happened since is a kind of fading of that euphoria, essentially, that um, as uh, the democratic transition has happened, as new governments in Nigeria or South Africa have had to struggle with problems of corruption, with problems of uh, disappointing expectations regarding you know, public goods delivery, delivery of free healthcare, uh, delivery of jobs, which is uh, unemployment being a huge problem across the whole of Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I think that you've started to have a, a process now where uh, Africans, and in particular younger generation of Africans, have started to become more critical of the performance of their democratic institutions. Okay, so that sort of explains a, um, the, the arc of dissatisfaction to some extent across sub-Saharan Africa. What's, what does the Middle East look like, which has had obviously very, very interesting, almost democratic tilt in 2009 in Iran and 11 across the rest of the Middle East. Where, what's, what's happened there? Well, I mean, our survey data on democratic satisfaction for the Middle East is limited to a fairly small number of countries. And that's partly a story about what happened since the Arab Spring in the sense that it was only really in Tunisia that we've seen uh, a genuine democratic transition. Most right. other countries in the Arab Spring uh, lapsed either into civil war, which we saw in Syria or Libya, uh, or into uh, more authoritarian repression, strikes or uh, protests in places like Saudi Arabia or some of the other Gulf states were very quickly put down. So in terms of the survey data, I think that it's important to point out we can only really look at places like Tunisia. We have long-standing data from Lebanon. And then in the non-Arab Middle East, so in Turkey or in Israel or in Iran, um, then we also do have some data from those places as well. Essentially, uh, I would say, if I just stick with Tunisia, which I think is really the country that is most important uh, in this regard, uh, as a bellwether for other countries in the region, not just the Maghreb, um, you've had a kind of process of disillusionment in the sense that um, they have struggled to establish a stable party system. But it's still very early. I mean, so if you look at the data, yeah, it is a very clear majority of citizens who've been dissatisfied fairly consistently uh, over the last decade. But it's probably still too early in the transition process to, to know for sure where that will go. Understood. Okay, moving to Latin America, which yep. um, struck me in your report as being particularly uh, disheartening, 80% mm. In Brazil and Mexico, dissatisfied with, with with democracy, what's gone on there? It's the sort of it's the continent which has consistently failed to deliver on the democratic score, isn't it? Despite a couple of hundred years of history. 
That's right. I mean, many countries in Latin America are among the first to move towards representative government, at least in the Americas. Uh, and I think that uh, the case in Latin America more recently, I think that the euphoria of the transition away from uh, military rule back to democracy in the 1980s, that had already started to fade by the 1990s, but there was this almost uh, golden period, maybe a, a rose period, better way of expressing it, in the early 2000s during the uh, so-called pink tide in Latin America, where for a period of time you had a, a series of left-wing governments, uh, center-left to hard-left, some were populists, uh, some were fairly moderate, uh, as in Chile. Uh, but what you had uh, during that time was a sense that um, these new governments might be able to transition Latin America to a more social democratic model, uh, more similar to Southern Europe, perhaps, and overcome some of the region's entrenched challenges with respect to uh, inequality uh, in particular. And so I think that there was this very brief period in the first decade of the 21st century where democratic satisfaction in Latin America finally seemed to be rising. Um, but unfortunately, that fell apart very, very quickly following the financial crisis and in particular following the commodities bust, which uh, really you know, revealed many of the weaknesses in the model of government of um, many of these populists or many of these pink tide leaders. Asia seems to be a particularly bright spot where there is um, ongoing satisfaction and growing satisfaction with democracy. Yes, and I think that you have to really separate out uh, different parts of Asia here because it's a slightly different picture in different places. So I think in Northeast Asia, so if we look at South Korea or even Taiwan to some extent, um, there's a, this is actually much more driven by um, a civic mobilization effort and uh, a kind of uh, uh, elite replacement that has occurred. So, I mean, in South Korea, you know, you had massive civic mobilization against corruption during the last decade, uh, and then um, you know, during the candlelight revolution, uh, and then uh, getting rid of some of the old caste of, of politicians and civil servants, bureaucrats who had been running the system up until then. Um, and I think that's a very different picture from what's going on in, say, Southeast Asia. So uh, Southeast Asia, democratic transition is much more recent in countries like Indonesia. So you still have the euphoria of transition uh, to some extent. Uh, but you also have improvements in, in other ways. So I think that you know, under the Sukhartai regime in Indonesia, corruption, grand corruption, was so widespread that in a sense things could only get better uh, through the transition to democracy. And even though there is a lot of corruption still in Indonesia today, um, it's improved uh, quite substantially since compared to where it was two decades ago. Um, so I think that the, you know, the picture for Southeast Asia and for Northeast Asia is kind of different. Um, I think for South Asia, uh, again, it's a different picture entirely. You mean India, uh, Sri Lanka? Yes, yeah. and probably we have to treat all those countries separately. I mean, India um, is, is quite unique in comparison to those other countries because of its democrat long democratic history. Uh, relatively stable democratic history. Um, and part of the euphoria, which I think is shared across uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia, um, simply relates to uh, breakneck economic growth and new economic opportunities and the fact that people's lives are improving in a very uh, objective and measurable sense. So from that bright spot, um, let's go to, to North America and the US particularly. A line in your first report struck me. You said that 
some countries that were previously thought to be consolidated in their support for democracy and in their, um, in their satisfaction with democracy. You gave the examples as Greece, Chile, or even the United States may have partly deconsolidated in recent years. The suggestion here is that the US, whose very identity seems premised on participatory democracy, may be untethering itself from the vision of its founding at some point. Yeah, and there's been, I mean, so much ink has been spilled around this topic over the last uh, five years or so. Indeed. Uh, it's difficult to know what to say at this point that hasn't already been said about American democracy. But indeed, I mean, we've always had this idea in political science of democratic consolidation. And essentially, the idea is that, um, you know, countries move from authoritarianism to democracy during the initial years. Uh, things are unstable. There are still many individuals in society who support the previous uh, system of government and would be prepared to support a return to that system of government, both among citizens, but crucially also among key um, you know, elite actors, perhaps in the army, even in the judiciary and the civil service and so on. And so that makes countries vulnerable to democratic backsliding, whether it's due to a military coup, whether it's due to the election anti-system populist or some other um, some other process by which democracy can break down. So the idea of democratic consolidation is that eventually you reach a point uh, after a generation, perhaps two generations, where you're starting to have peaceful transfers of power. Uh, there are a few, in few individuals who remember any other way of running the country. There are no individuals, there's nostalgia, therefore, for a previous pre-democratic era. Um, and no individuals in the army or anywhere else who um, disagree with the principle of civilian uh, military separation of powers and separation in government. So the idea is that at that point, democracy has become consolidated. Uh, there's really no possibility uh, of a shift to a non-democratic system of government because there is nobody to actually drive that change. Um, and I think that uh, at that point in time, of course, people may be very satisfied with democracy. And I think that the, that idea of democratic consolidation is an idea that uh, has somewhat fallen apart over the last four or five years or so, uh, precisely because we've seen how in many of the world's most longstanding and established democracies, it is possible for politicians to start uh, violating the informal norms of democracy, such as conceding an election, being a, you know, a recent salient example. Um, as well as potentially some of the more formal uh, norms of democracy, um, which you know include respecting um, you know, freedom of expression, uh, freedom to organize, uh, freedom to mobilize, and freedom to contest elections, uh, and respecting electoral integrity, right? Not trying to exclude individuals uh, from their right to vote. So I think in all of those ways, uh, we're aware now of how established democracies are also susceptible um, to many of the pressures that developing democracies or non-established or non-consolidated democracies have always faced. Um, so I guess to come back then to the United States, I mean, uh, in terms of what does our data show about the United States? Well, um, we can see that you know, since the mid-1990s, satisfaction with democracy in the United States has absolutely plunged. Uh, it's one of the sharpest drops. And the United States has actually gone from a situation where in the mid-1990s, America was actually one of the most satisfied countries with the performance of this democracy in the world. Right? If we look at data from around 1995, uh, satisfaction with democracy, you had about three quarters of Americans who were satisfied with how democracy was performing. 
Um, and that's gone to a situation where today uh, a majority of Americans are dissatisfied with how democracy is performing. So it's a big shift. Um, and I think in terms of the story about why has that happened, um, I mean, I think you, you've got, you know, again, this may not be an area where I can add much to what has already been said, but I think simply the, you know, the cycle of polarization and partisanship that I guess really began with Gingrich and, and Gingrich versus Clinton uh, in the 1990s, but has continued ever since and perhaps reached its apex uh, under Trump. Uh, but we'll, we'll, you know, ne never say you've passed the peak until uh, until you're sure that you have. <laughs> so it has reached a local optima, or I mean, optima is not the right word, but has reached a local peak with Trump, the Trump era. Um, so the cycle of partisanship, uh, polarization, uh, the combination of that with social media uh, and its effects on political debate, combined again with the nature of the U.S. electoral system. Uh, which is a majoritarian system. It leaves a lot of people in states where their vote won't have much influence or have an effect. Uh, there are huge problems of um, electoral integrity in many respects. Uh, so people's ability to vote, right? uh, actual efforts to suppress the vote in the United States. Uh, and as we've seen recently, uh, there's certainly a lot of doubt in the US public, uh, not least of all sowed by, um, by Trump and others around him. Regarding uh, the integrity of the actual uh, you know, ballot counting process, so when those you know perceptions are starting to erode, uh, then you know that's very dangerous uh, for a democracy, and it clearly relates to a broader culture of dissatisfaction with how democratic institutions are operating. That's fascinating. Um, just to just to clear up the point you made about majoritarian uh, political yes. political system, it's what we have. Uh, in the UK as well. It's it's the idea that there is one of only two parties that will ever win and you have a first-past-the-post system which disenfranchises um, in a sort of palpable way a whole lot of people in, in majority X or majority Y states or boroughs or constituencies. Um, and there's some data that suggests going to the macro at this point, um, although I know you don't like macro theories, but actually that majoritarian systems of government tend to encourage dissatisfaction with democracy. They don't help much. The Anglo-Saxon uh, political model may not be um, the best in this regard. That's right. And I should um, stress at this point that there is an, a long academic literature on this topic going back several decades, um, specifically on the relationship between majoritarianism, uh, proportional representation, and satisfaction with democracy. So that's not necessarily something new that we discovered, uh, but it is something that really jumps out from the data. So when we look at the most satisfied uh, countries in the world with their democratic institutions, you know, democracies in Scandinavia or the Netherlands, um, they are by and large all countries that operate proportional representation. And proportional representation, I mean, as a system of uh, voting uh, uh, for representatives, um, it is a system that is by definition representative. <laughs> I mean, it's by definition. Got it in the name. <laughs> got it in the name. Uh, whichever party you support, you can vote for that party, and they, they have to clear generally a very low threshold in order to get some representation in Parliament. And because it's also, um, it tends to produce very fragmented legislatures, um, you tend to have coalition government very often in PR systems. And what that, so that, what that means is not only do you have a good chance of being represented uh, in Parliament, but you also have a good chance that your party you support, even if it's a fairly minor party, might actually be represented in government as well. Um, so, yeah. 
so let's take this as an excuse to go to come into Europe now and yeah. to talk perhaps a little about the countries in Europe because they feel that many of them are in Europe um, that do show high levels of satisfaction with democracy. Um, uh, because there's a, there's a very interesting mix there. There's the, there's the old-fashioned liberal democracies that you, you've just flagged, Norway, Switzerland, Sweden, etc. But there's also quite a lot of satisfaction with democracy in what we might think of as illiberal populist countries like Poland. Yes, yes. And this is actually part of an interesting phenomenon that relates to what I call the cycle of populism. Which, uh, as, which is a bit of a generalized theory, so you'll have to excuse me for that. But <laughs> the cycle is generally this idea that um, you know, populist parties tend to break through in democracies that are failing at representation, that you have a large proportion of people in society whose political views and values are being ignored. Uh, perhaps that's because you have a majoritarian system where you have voters in you know, the north, north of England or in the American Midwest who have been taken for granted by uh, major political parties. They have not been until recently swing states. They obviously are now, but we'll come back to that. Um, so you have a, a large proportion of individuals who feel that they're not being represented, and they feel that way because they're not, because in some sense that's true, that the nature of the system does leave a lot of individuals uh, unrepresented. Can I flag this? Just to, can I just interrupt? Because it's it's a point that you make over and again, which is that actually this uh, dissatisfaction with democracy that you've charted around the world, you describe as yeah. rational. It is yeah. actually based on a, f a series of perceived and real failures. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's something that's often um, <laughs> often irritated me in discussions around survey research. Is I think there's a tendency to over-explain people's survey responses. Um, when really the simplest explanation is just to take people literally. Um, I can remember, for example, a conversation I was having at a conference uh, a year or two back uh, about the topic of, well, why do people vote for Brexit in the United Kingdom in 2016? And you, you, get, you get a panel of people who go through all kinds of theories about you know, left-behind working class, about immigration, about resentment against London or globalization. <laughs> I can remember saying, look, you know, I think the reason why most people voted for Brexit is because they wanted to leave the European Union. Um, <laughs> right. so now, we can, we can have a debate about how people came to that opinion, right? And, and that might go back to issues about globalization and about migration and so on, and that's fine. Um, but we have to start from the proximate uh, cause, which is the actual attitudes that individuals hold uh, and will vote on the basis of in a referendum like that. So I think on the issue about satisfaction with democracy, I think it is rational. People are responding to that question cognitively in terms of how they think about the performance of their institutions. Um, and I think the evidence of that is that there's just such a strong covariance between objective measures of how democratic institutions are functioning such as you know, Transparency International uh, Corruption Index or the Worldwide Governance. And I think the best evidence of that is that there's such a high covariance between uh, people's uh, subjective perception of how democracy is performing and the more, so to speak, objective indicators produced by experts, such as corruption's perception, uh, indices, or measures of quality of government, like those that the worldwide uh, governance indicators produce. So, you know, in countries like Switzerland and Denmark, where institutions function very well, people are very, very satisfied with their institutions. 
and in countries where institutions are failing uh, in various ways, uh, such as in Latin America uh, over the last couple of decades, um, those are the countries where dissatisfaction is high and indeed very often increasing. So uh, I think people are rational in how they respond to that. That makes question. sense. Can I bring you back to the question of satisfaction with illiberal democracies in yes. Eastern Europe? Yes, yes. I, mean, I think that you basically have a cycle of populism. So the first stage is that you have a democracy in which people feel like they're not represented. Then you have populist politicians who are able to break through because they appeal to those people who feel like they don't have a voice, who feel like they're excluded. They say, I will be your voice. Um, and eventually, in many cases, such populist politicians get elected. And at the point at which a populist politician is elected, right, uh, if we think about you know, when Chavez was elected in Venezuela, for example, at that point in time, uh, at that moment, it is uh, a more representative outcome in the sense that very often populists are popular and very often many of the things they propose are popular policies that the existing prior uh, political establishment um, has refused to take for various reasons, uh, uh, not least of all because sometimes they may be uh, catastrophic policies to pursue in the long run. So at that point in time, you tend to have this euphoric phase. I think during the first term of a populist leader, Donald Trump was the big exception in our data, but in almost every other country where a populist was elected, during their first term, you tend to see a really big increase in satisfaction with democracy. Um, and sometimes that follows through as well into a second term. Uh, it generally doesn't follow through into the third term. And so I think part of what we see in Eastern Europe, when we mention countries like Hungary or Poland, where illiberal politicians have broken through. Um, I think they're still at that stage. Hungary may be reaching the end of that stage right now, but they're still in that stage where people feel that uh, illiberal populists represent the silent majority. So Roberto, if people are rational in being dissatisfied with democracy, focusing only on the developed West, Europe and the US, Canada, why is democracy failing there? Why are institutions failing? Well, I think it's useful to think about how society and the economic structure has changed over the last generation. And what I would say is that in Western societies, there are two deep inequalities that have emerged uh, in the course of several decades. The first is the spatial divide, the regional divide between, on the one hand, the successful cosmopolitan global cities, like London, and New York, or Paris, Amsterdam, San Francisco, that you can see, and you can see objectively in the data, you can download the data from the OECD uh, regional uh, economy website, you can see that you know, income per capita has absolutely shot higher uh, in these cities, right? Uh, that, you know, in London today, income per capita is something like $80,000. Um, whereas on the other hand, you know, somewhere like Wales, uh, it's about a third of that. So when you have a situation in countries where these huge spatial inequalities between the successful global cities and the left behind rural and ex-industrial areas, uh, that uh, creates uh, a justified and legitimate resentment. And that resentment has come out now, uh, both in terms of people's dissatisfaction with what, how democracies are performing, okay. uh, and indeed with established parties are performing. Now, the second inequality, and this really relates to our second report, uh, is the intergenerational divide. So there is now a huge wealth gap between you know, millennials on one hand and baby boomers essentially on the other. 
that is extremely wide. And so, you know, whereas in the United States, uh, you know, millennials account for something like 4%, 3 to 4% of wealth, but when baby boomers were at the same age, you know, they had closer to 20% of national wealth. So uh, there is this deep intergenerational inequality that has developed. And that is why uh, I say one of the key reasons why uh, we see uh, this pervasive dissatisfaction among younger generations in the West. So let's now open that up, looking very specifically at the younger generations in the developed West who are expressing much, much higher levels of dissatisfaction with democracy than any of their peers, any of their, any other generation has done at their age. How is that being articulated? How do you see that, not just in the data, but in the ways that um, that, that generation expresses itself politically? Well, I think actually the main expression of that is through apathy. Um, and I think that's something people very often miss when they look at uh, elections, so people do election studies, and they say, well, okay, you know, the proportion of people who voted for Trump was this, and this among this age group, and the proportion of people who voted for Biden or Clinton four years ago is, is this. And very often ignoring the fact that, you know, by far the most common electoral behavior in the United States among young people is not to vote. Uh, people don't turn out to vote. And so I think that the most common expression of that uh, politically is not been joining political parties, uh, not voting in elections because people don't really see that there's a possibility of representation or parties, don't, politicians don't appeal to them. Every now and then, and I think this is really a new phenomenon over the last five years, you know, we've started to see cases where uh, populist politicians, particularly on the left, but not exclusively, but more commonly on the left, have managed to tap into youth dissatisfaction in order to mobilize and contest and sometimes even win elections. And so that's something we've seen very clearly in Southern Europe. Uh, we saw it in Greece with Syriza, we see it in Spain with Podemos, uh, we see it in Italy with the Five Star Movement. And we also saw it, of course, in the UK uh, with the Corbyn wave that culminated, I suppose, in 2017. One cause of this general youth dissatisfaction is the intergenerational divide, this massive wealth gap that you describe. What are the other drivers of that dissatisfaction amongst youth in these developed democracies? Well, I think that the wealth and the economic factors are at the heart of it, because, I mean, a lot basically stems from that, that when you're in a situation where you go through life, you start out life with really high levels of debt uh, due to the cost of student fees, uh, there are few, very few available jobs, uh, only a very limited pool of high-paying jobs in you know, finance or tech or uh, other knowledge sectors. Uh, most people end up struggling uh, on jobs that uh, pay a lot less and maybe don't use, uh, make best use of the uh, academic credentials that people have uh, acquired. Uh, when you have a situation where rents are extremely high, young people have difficulty getting on the housing market, uh, getting on the housing ladder, um, I think that, you know, and ultimately people have difficulty starting out in life. And I think this is a really important factor that, uh, you know, if you reach your 30s and you're not able to afford to have a house, have a family, you know, move on uh, to the next stage in life, uh, that can create a great deal of um, uh, kind of latent dissatisfaction. In one of your reports, you mentioned climate change. There is a sense that climate change is so very urgent that it might require non-democratic forms of response. Does that feed into that youth dissatisfaction too? 
Well, I, I want to um, back up a moment there because I think that a lot of democracies are taking quite radical action on climate change. And of course, one of the reasons why climate change as an issue rose to prominence in the 1980s and 90s uh, was precisely because of democratic representation, uh, because green parties in Europe were getting votes, were drawing votes from other parties, and that shifted or centrist parties towards an environmentalist platform, uh, including here in the UK. Uh, so I don't think that necessarily it's the case that democracies fail to take action on climate change. However, um, I do acknowledge that there is a sort of philosophical point here, uh, which is that in democracy, uh, future generations are not represented in elections. Um, and that has engendered some fear that perhaps democracies can be short-termist, indeed democracies can be short-termist, taking policies that benefit the living over the as yet unborn. Um, so I think that's a, you know, uh, that can be a valid point, uh, but there are really not many alternatives unless you're lucky enough to have a very forward-looking uh, technocratic elite. Uh, into which you're prepared to uh, place your place authority and trust and power. Uh, but that's quite a gamble, I think. So beyond often left-wing populism, are there any forms of government that you find um, young people supporting as an alternative to democracy when they are as dissatisfied as they seem to be oh, from your reports? You see the full spectrum, actually. And I think this is one of the interesting things. I've not written about this directly yet. But I mean, there was, for example, a great YouGov poll that's been running since 2017, where they not only asked people um, you know, whether they think democracy is you know, better or worse or as good or bad as other systems of government, but then they had a follow-up question. You know, it was like, well, if you, if you, if you think there's a better system of government than democracy, uh, what is it? And I think what was really interesting was that the answers were just all over the place, right? From revolutionary socialism to absolute absolutist monarchy to army rule to you know some form of you know a true direct uh, participative democracy. So I think that what that says to me is that you know there's a lot of individuals out there who are disillusioned with our existing institutions but have not really settled cognitively on an alternative. And I think that's also, that can, that's actually quite dangerous in some ways, because in some ways I think that's what gives populist politicians an, an in. Because populist politicians are able to articulate something which they can package as being true democracy, uh, which at the same time actually undermines uh, some of the norms of liberal democratic government. But the mere fact that such a large number of young people are looking for alternatives to, to, to democracy is frightening to a centrist liberal democrat like me. Yes, um, but I think at the same time, I think it's important to situate oneself in the, what the, the meaning of democracy and how the meaning of democracy has changed over time. So I think that when many young people are asked about democracy, what people have in mind is the system of Colin Crouch called post-democracy of the 1990s and even 2000s to some extent. That is to say, uh, a democratic system where uh, there's you know two main parties, let's say, who have very little difference between them on key economic and social questions, a liberal or maybe a neoliberal 
a consensus on most issues. And most politicians are really a sort of professional class who are trained as being politicians, uh, rather than, as used to be the case in the past, uh, individuals with fairly unique backgrounds and values who maybe went into politics after you sometimes spent in business or in working in trade unions or in churches or charities or the army, or but essentially somewhere uh, outside of politics, um, rather than simply you know going straight into politics after university, uh, after being a special advisor for a while. So I think that when young people get the question, uh, younger generations get the question about democracy, I think people are expressing dissatisfaction with that particular model of democratic politics, um, which is not to say, and what that, you know, there's actually a potentially fairly optimistic interpretation of that, which is to say that, well, if we are returning to a more contested form of politics, and you know, if we're returning to a form of politics where there are actually deeper divides between the political parties and where issues are actually coming back into contention, that might actually increase people's satisfaction with how democracies are performing. People might feel that within uh, established democratic politics, there is actually something worth contesting. Yeah, exactly. It feels as if that this dissatisfaction with democracy is in fact dissatisfaction with what you've just described as post-democracy. That yes. in fact, what they want is, what we all want is more, not more polarization, but more contestation, greater choice. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that one of the points that I always try and make is that, you know, populists are often right about some things. Right? And populists are successful because half of what they say is true. So when populists describe uh, the failings of the democratic system, populists will say that, well, you know, there's a closed uh, elite, there's a clique that, you know, individuals don't have much chance of, you know, actually changing anything really, uh, that, you know, the, the role of money in politics is pervasive, uh, and special interests, and, you know, all of those are, are true. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they, those are all valid points, uh, and of course they're truer in some countries than others, I would say that they're maybe truer in the United States than in the UK, and maybe truer in the UK than, I don't know, Denmark, but, um, you know, these are all uh, valid points, and so I think that Part of the dissatisfaction with democracy can be a constructive force to improve our democracies. Uh, and that even, uh, this is a more contentious point, that even populist politicians in office uh, sometimes have the ability to actually implement uh, good, meaningful reforms. Sometimes populists in office do moderate their platform and return to a more conventional form of politics that is constructive rather than destructive. Roberta, that's, um, that's a very positive note on which to sort of begin to wrap up here. What I'm hearing here is your recommendations might be non-majoritarian political systems, which allow for a greater multiplicity of political voices, some, in some way embracing greater contestation. Polarization is the wrong word because it implies so much hatred of the other side, but at least more contestation, more, more ideas, more of a Barney about what uh, democracy should be about in order to reinvigorate it. Absolutely. And if I look at countries that I think are on the right track in getting out of the current populist wave, um, I think that where you have proportional representation uh, that produces coalitions between new populist challenges and established parties, um, that often is quite healthy. Uh, so I think that what you see in Italy uh, with the current coalition uh, between the Five Star Movement and the PD, uh, or what you see in Spain uh, with Podemos uh, now, um, in some ways, this is healthy because it brings moderation into populist parties. Uh, it brings people who previously felt excluded uh, in, back into democratic politics. Uh, and at the same time, there is still some potential there 
to really implement needed uh, social and political reforms. Roberto, can I end with a question uh, at the macro level? About 15 years ago, Bob Kagan, the political theorist, wrote a book called The Return of History. And his broad thesis was that the 21st century was going to be an ideological debate between successful autocracies, I think he had China very much in mind, and messy, inefficient democracies. And the 21st century was going to be a fight to see which one of those two political systems won out around the world. Do you think that's true? And do you think that the kind of dissatisfaction that we're seeing now with democracy in democratic states suggests that there is a backsliding that could lead to um, the China model prevailing? Uh, my short answer is no. And my reason for saying no is because I think the premise is wrong. Uh, I think that what we see in the 21st century is, on the one hand, a mix of, let's say, more functional, uh, effective autocracies such as China or Vietnam, uh, and autocracies that clearly are quite messy, uh, such as, uh, well, I don't know, Iran, or maybe messier examples, such as Venezuela today, uh, might be a, a better example of that. Um, and then on the other hand, you have democracies, and some democracies are quite functional uh, in Scandinavia, Switzerland, and much of Northern Europe, uh, or indeed Northeast Asia, Korea, for example, or Japan. Uh, so I think that we have quite functional democracies in the world today, and we also have some more dysfunctional democracies. And um, the United States, by no means, is at the bottom of that list. Uh, I mean, uh, if you think about countries in Latin America or, or parts of Sub Saharan Africa. So I think that the 21st century, um, it's uh, it's not going to be a contest between two models. Uh, it's going to be a contest to improve quality of government, uh, regardless of the regime type. The other thing I would say is that, you know, I prefer not to think in terms of democracies on one hand and non-democracies on the other. Because, I mean, you have a huge variation in the degree of democracy among Western democracies. You know, direct democracy in Switzerland on one hand versus majoritarianism, uh, you know, parliamentary systems versus presidential systems, which give a lot of power to the executive. Uh, so I think there's a lot of variation within democracies. Uh, and I think there's also a lot of variation among so-called authoritarian regimes. I don't think that you could compare somewhere like North Korea uh, to Russia or even Iran. Uh, there's a lot of variation in authoritarian regimes in the extent to which there are different, different political parties, citizens can contest elections, the degree to which there is a degree of public debate, uh, or indeed even electoral integrity. So I think that authoritarian regimes also differ a lot on these kind of dimensions. Um, so I, I don't I, I don't think uh, we can divide the world uh, simply into you know, effective autocracy versus dysfunctional democracy. Roberto, that's a wonderful way to end what's been a very instructive and um, and really interesting conversation about democracy and its future in the 21st century. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.